Hello and welcome to the Paediatric Anesthesia Journal's Featured Article of the Month podcast for May 2022. These monthly podcasts are published on the journal's website and you can also subscribe to them via iTunes, Google, Podbean or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Dr. Nilru Vithirana. This month's featured article is entitled Developing an Extubation Strategy for the Difficult Paediatric Airway. Who, when, why, where and how. I'm delighted to be joined by the author and my colleague, Dr. Andrew Wetherill from the Children's Hospital Westmead in Sydney, Australia. Andrew is the social media editor for the journal and also my head of department. And look, I'm not going to deny that I relish the opportunity to see the tables turned where I get to ask the tough questions. Welcome, Andrew. Firstly, what were the aims of the paper and how does this paper fill in some of the gaps in this sphere? So I guess... um... Expanding on that wonderful introduction, um, the key thing here is like most questions that come and turn up in a paper, I think hopefully come from a position of some kind of clinical scenario. You know, so actually the story here is really about the stuff that we see day to day in our work in, uh, I think, any paediatric anaesthetic setting, where sometimes we have these patients who are sent to us because they need extubation specifically. Or we've faced a difficulty with airway management and we're faced with that challenge at the end of it. What do we do at the end? How do we make this safe? And underlying all of that is this background where we get taught all through our training uh, that the takeoff is just as difficult as the landing. They're equally the most challenging parts of the anaesthetic. And yet I think we were sort of along the way, it just occurred to a bunch of us that in fact we spend kind of a disproportionate amount of time talking about the airway management at the start of the thing. Um, And even in that, like maybe we talk disproportionately about the putting a breathing tube in bit. And and I don't know if that's just because uh, putting a breathing tube in comes with all sorts of cool tools that you can try and play with, or it, you know, there's all these different techniques that you try. So it just takes up this inordinate amount of noise and space, if you like. Whereas things like face mask ventilation, like pediatric anesthetists know that's really challenging, but there's not nearly enough around about that. And then you get to the end bit, which honestly, as a clinician, is sometimes the bit that makes me sweat the most because I don't have a bunch of cool tools at my disposal. But we've got so good about talking about how we plan for the start with the airway management that relatively speaking, we kind of don't have the same structures or just approach or thinking, or at least I didn't, to how do I do this really safely at the end on behalf of the patient. And we also had this happy coincidence that one of my co-authors, the amazing Dr. Renee Burton, as a fellow who was actually starting to look at our extubation stats, if you like, across our hospital. And those two things kind of came together to make us think, you know what, we should actually start promoting a discussion about how we do this best. Um, having rather embarrassingly realized that the people out there in adult anesthesia had already started doing it. So really we were looking to, if you like, address something that we thought kind of needed talking about more. And once we got there and started realizing that like, it's even hard to come up with good definitions for what is a difficult extubation, we thought, well, actually, there's probably something here and we can't find something that is definitely helping guide our thinking. Maybe we should just start writing something. And that's kind of where we ended up. Great. And I agree. It's so often that we talk about a plan A, B and C for intubation. And you've kind of touched on why it's just as important to consider extubation. Can you expand a little bit on how you guys defined uh, a difficult extubation or identifying patients that might need a more careful extubation strategy, even if their initial intubation was relatively easy. So I guess the actual genesis of how we did that was probably we all sat around and thought about 
what are the clinical scenarios that make us sweat? It's not a terrible place to start, I think, when trying to come up with a good way to think about stuff, like a framework, because it should always start clinically. But when we got into the nitty gritty of it, um, we looked around for the various definitions that were out there and even some of the guidelines that were already written sort of focused on a patient who was already difficult or they defined needing to come up with an extubation plan only in the context of a patient where it had been challenging to put a breathing sheet in. And we wanted to be a little bit more comprehensive than that because I suspect for anything like me, you've come across patients where the, in some ways the easiest bit is actually putting the breathing sheet in. That's not the challenge. The challenge is that you know that afterwards they're going to have a bit of airway swelling or they're relatively small or um, they might have neuromuscular weakness. And it's all of those things that's actually going to make it challenging for them to get back to not needing a breathing tube. The putting a breathing tube in bit is really easy. So we wanted a broader definition of that. And actually, a really nice definition came out from the Canadian Airway Focus Group uh, not that long ago, where they sort of defined the at-risk tracheal intubation as being the patient who's anticipated to be intolerant of tracheal extubation or who might be difficult to re-intubate. And we really like the fact that they went with or rather than just and, because otherwise you're excluding so many really challenging patients. So we just got a little bit more specific and sort of said the difficult intubation is something you should anticipate when you as the airway clinician assess that you might need additional techniques or additional ways to provide oxygenation or more ventilatory support afterwards, or when re-intubation is likely to be difficult. And we specifically also wanted to mention the airway clinician because we think it's really important in a definition like that, that you also want to capture the actual person who's doing the procedure, because that's the clinician who matters to the patient. And so you kind of want to write some framework that works for the anaesthetist who's working in a small metropolitan hospital, just as much as the anaesthetist who's working in a very advanced tertiary kids hospital. So it's in my hands. Do I think that at my range of techniques, I'm going to actually benefit from a little bit of extra support for this patient? It's about the clinician as well when you're trying to define it. And when you looked at the pre-existing literature, what were some of the known risk factors and reasons for extubation failure? Yeah, it's a really, I mean, it's an interesting area that definitely, I think almost everything in the paper, we had the, you know, the really nice reflex that we could keep saying, actually, probably more research needs to be done in this area because that's a little bit what it's like at the moment. Um, So we use that get out of jail card a little bit, to be honest which I think is fair because what you see is a decent amount of description in the um, ICU literature um, with these failure rates of 5.8% right up to, or even 4.1% right up to sort of 17 plus percent. In the anaesthetic literature, you see papers where they look at like an unselected population, relatively low rates, but in the definitely difficult airway population, relatively high rates with significant complications. And then when you drill down into the things that those papers describe as being a challenge for their extubation, they tend to separate out specific things around upper airway obstruction and laryngospasm, which I guess is nice in the sense that it's not that surprising. Um, sometimes it's nice to have your biases reinforced. What's a little bit, we found a little bit harder to pass in the literature is exactly how you're defining that, like how you're defining that you're really confident was upper airway obstruction or not. I think most of us would have a pretty clear sense of how you're confident it's laryngospasm. I guess one of the messages that we take away from that is that the patients who are uh, likely to get in trouble afterwards. A lot of it's about things happening above the cords, more so even things below the cords. And maybe that gives us hints as to the sort of things that we'll need to do to help support the patient afterwards. So the adult DAS guidelines talk about plan, prepare, perform and post-extubation care. How have you transformed that into a paediatric approach? Yeah, it's interesting. So we looked at that, obviously, because we were looking at what was already out there, because we weren't necessarily looking to reinvent any wheels. 
But at the same time, when we were looking at the DAS guidelines, there was lots of great stuff about it. But in looking at the bit particularly that said, uh, this is the plan phase, it sort of struck us that it felt more like it was a risk assessment phase. And then when it got into the prepare phase, they actually started doing some of the work of, if you like, addressing the things that they'd found in the plan phase. And so we just tweaked it a little bit and we came up with risk, ready, do and discharge. And uh, I guess part of the reason for that is that they're all very short words, uh, which was something that we were really keen on because we're relatively simplistic people by nature. And it's an easy way for us to abbreviate it is to utilise the quick mnemonic R2D2. And uh, we definitely didn't choose that because we were looking to latch into any cultural touchstones that people might already have preset in their mind. So R2D2 is a nice, easy way to think about it, I think. And each one of those phases is hopefully a slightly different phase, but a very active phase of something that you can do. So let's break down R2D2 a little bit more. What encompasses the risk part? So there's each of the phases has like a few relatively simple questions associated with it. So for risk, the question is, are there any old factors that you can see that might suggest to you that this is going to be a difficult extubation? Are there any new factors that have turned up around the time of this admission or your interaction with the patient that will obviously cause problems? Uh, Are there any uh, additional bits of information that would help inform your risk assessment? And a key slight difference maybe with the DAS approach is that we then sort of say, well, if you identify a risk, you should actually just address it and reduce the amount of risk. So um, to go into those in just the tiniest bit more detail, for some of the pre-existing risk factors, you're looking at the things that tell you that your techniques are going to be difficult. So things that look like there'll be uh, an additional challenge for face mask ventilation. Did you need lots of CPAP or do you know that they need lots of CPAP? Do they routinely need airway adjuncts when you're face mask ventilating or two-person techniques or lots of oxygen? Are there factors around intubation that will be obviously difficult? And I think most um, clinicians will have a pretty clear sense of those. Do they have prior failed extubation? And I guess some of the background underlying risk factors that you see in the literature are also sort of reflected there, although you know, we could have been even clearer with that in the tables, I suspect. So things like there's reasonable evidence that smaller kids, so kids under 10 kilos or two years and below, or even maybe even smaller than that, six months and below, are more likely to present challenges with extubation. And particularly patients have been intubated and ventilated for a prolonged period of time, say seven days plus. And then finally, some of those you know background factors might be ventilation factors. So if they always need non-invasive respiratory support, there's a reasonable chance they're going to need some support. Or if you know they've got neuromuscular conditions, that could be likewise something that you would expect to see. And then having considered the old things, you can obviously consider the new things. So have you developed a degree of airway edema, possibly because you took a lot of attempts to put the breathing tube in? Or have any other new airway pathologies turned up, breathing pathologies turned up? And maybe a key one that's a new factor that's sometimes really relevant in theatres is, is there something that compromises your access to the airway? So if they've had halo traction put on, for example, or if they've got a new mandibular fixation because um, the clever surgeons are doing something amazing, obviously that's going to make maybe just pique your interest a little bit more in saying I need to do a bit more planning in this like in this kind of setting. Obviously, sometimes extra information might help inform your risk assessment. So things like, you know, is there relevance for flexible knees endoscopy or examination of the upper airways? Would leak tests or things like that help you assess whether or not there's airway swelling that you need to worry about? And finally, all the simple reversible things. So is their cardiorespiratory status absolutely optimised? Are they actually strong enough to get through? Are they at the right level of sedation? Are there all those sorts of things? And I think that real key of reversing factors also really well supported in the Canadian Airway Focus Group work where their actual whole mnemonic is reversed. 
Um, it's just too long for me to remember because I'm a simple person. And so next up is ready. What do we need to consider at this stage? Uh, so the ready part of the mnemonic is really, that is, okay, now we're going to come up with a plan that we're going to get ready to put into action. And so it's an active phase of figuring out who's needed, when should we do this, where should we do it, uh, with what equipment are we going to use, uh, have. And obviously we always need to plan for a reintubation that might arise from this on the off chance that our brilliant extubation planning hasn't necessarily come to fruition. So the who is needed is obviously really important, and much the same way that when we talk about difficult intubation, we talk about the value of having really experienced clinicians, you want the right people in the room. So somebody who's uh, hopefully on an anaesthetics or airway clinician side feels comfortable and experienced. We always like to talk about the possibility of asking for a bonus person to help and give your hands. Um, very specifically, it's a bonus person because an extra person sounds like they're a third wheel. Bonus person reinforces that you yourself are a really clever and wonderful person, but everybody likes a bonus. So that's a nice thing to have. Have you got the right nursing support? And quite often with these difficult extubations, you can imagine that clever people like ENT surgeons would be valuable to have. So the who is really important to define and make sure that they're there. We really noticed, and even looking in our own stats, that there's a real value in choosing when it should happen, because sometimes the patient will have complications that arise hours after the initial extubation. And so ideally you want, if there is going to be a change in their condition, it'd be really ideal for that to be happening still during daylight hours with lots of good people around. So um, really for a particularly challenging extubation, nice to be doing it before midday, for example. Although, of course, sometimes, given that we've just said that sometimes you'll realise it's going to be a difficult extubation, sorry, just after the intubation, you might be, it might still be 10 o'clock at night and that might be when you're faced with it or it might influence you to say, you know what, we're going to hold off tonight and make a better plan for tomorrow. The where it should happen, I guess, there will still be some of those patients with challenges, like if they need non-invasive support, where it's still quite reasonable to consider extubation in the ICU if you've made a good plan or in some other location. But obviously, quite often, these will be the sorts of cases where you really want to be in the theatre with all your familiar gear. And then we get into the nitty gritty. Like I said, that you don't necessarily have lots of cool equipment for extubation, but you want to know that you've got the right equipment for particularly your first supports and any other things you're going to use. So humidified high-flow nasal cannula, for example, or um, non-invasive ventilation with somebody who really knows how to drive that system. And at the end of it, the reintubation plan, which we felt was obviously beyond the scope of the article to go into, and I suspect not necessarily appropriate for me to go into endlessly here because they're supposed to be short podcasts, and I kind of rabbit on a little bit. That's all right. And next up, we come to the Ds. So how about do? What do you need to do at this stage apart from just pulling the tube? So I think the key thing in the do phase is we view that very much as something that's about optimising the human factors part of doing an airway thing or working in a team. So there are some simple things there, like are there any other procedures you need to consider as part of the extubation? And I guess the most common one would be rigid airway endoscopy. But the really key thing is you've got your plan, which hopefully you're going to spend some time just before you actually get to the crunch of doing it, briefing with the whole team that's going to be there. So everybody's really sharing that mental model. And as part of that brief, we've suggested that you should really have this open discussion about what your go and no-go points are. So it's like when you hit each thing, you say, we need to see this happen before we will progress to um, trying to take the breathing tube out. So we need to see this oxygenation target hit. We need to see this amount of respiratory effort. We need to see this amount of awakeness and strength and whatever else it is. When we see each of these, we will openly declare, we've seen this, we've seen this, it's time to move on, we can move on. And likewise, you're declaring if we don't see that, we're all going to say, actually, this isn't the right choice or do we need to divert? 
And the reason I think that's so important is that when you are doing that, the whole process is not only to clarify your own thinking, but making sure that everybody in the room shares that thinking. And hopefully because you've, you know, hopefully humbly sort of said, this is what we're going to do. Any person in the room, even if it's their first day in the pediatrics hospital and they're the medical students seeing things for the first time, will hopefully feel empowered to say, oh, I'm not sure that we hit that key thing that you mentioned before. Um, Obviously, there can be a whole discussion about greater assertiveness, but to be able to say freely, you know, I'm not sure that we've hit this. Did we see this? And anybody in the room hopefully feels empowered to speak up. Obviously, you want to, in the do phase, have your first step in respiratory support ready, which I sort of made reference to before. And then to openly declare what are our targets after the extubation. So what are we hoping that's, how will we know if the level of respiratory effort is right? What are we happy with from an oxygenation point of view? What do we want to see so we can all be confident that this has been a successful extubation? Uh, And just as crucially, what are the things that we would see which would make us think we've got to change approach or we have to go back to re-intubation? And the last D is for discharge. And I really like that before you've even started this whole process, you've thought about the post-extubation care and how that can be best approached. Tell us a little bit more about this stage. I guess what we were, you know, really hoping to drive home, and I think also the DAS algorithm does this really nicely, is that from a patient's point of view, it's not enough to get to the bit where the breathing tubes come out, have them on some support, and then all exchange high fives, crack off to the tea room and start chatting about other you know, um, battle stories from other days in anesthesia where things went really well for you, you've actually got to make sure they've got a cohesive plan that gets them out to continuing to be safe. So the key parts of this that we um, sort of included in the algorithm to think about is who's going to be looking after the patient. So you're going to have them in the sort of um, place with the right kind of people that can look at them enough and have the right skill set to keep doing whatever you've set up as the way they're going to be supported. So, you know, the appropriate high acuity area or is it just that they're going to need a little bit of oxygen? So who's going to be looking after them? Where will that patient be where they can do that? How are you going to get them there in a safe fashion from a transfer point of view? What's your ongoing respiratory support plan? So is it non-invasive ventilation? Is it humidified high flow? Will they need even less than that because you've actually cleared the critical bit? And then a really key step around documentation and handover. So it's great to do this brilliant extubation, but... When we do intubations, we do all these difficult airway documentations, and this is the fancy bit of kit that I used, and this is what I saw, and I did backwards, upwards, rightwards, pressure, external laryngeal manipulation, and we we communicate that really well. But it's equally as important to understand what was successful for extubation and what your plan would be for after that. So that needs to be really clearly documented, not just for now in this admission, but for the next time that this patient maybe comes back. Because these are the sorts of patients we see again and again. Um, And then... Ultimately, you want to have a direct peer-to-peer handover. So if you, for example, are doing an extubation, if they deteriorate later, it might be one of your colleagues who actually gets called back. And you, having just looked after that patient, have just generated all this really important knowledge about what's worked for that patient. And it would be criminal to let that fall on the ground because you just didn't hand it over. So that real peer-to-peer, and that's like at nursing levels and medical levels, so that everybody has this real shared understanding, I think really valuable. And the final bit is just dotting I's and crossing T's. So is the rest of the, have we remembered the rest of the plan because it's going to interact? So things like if a patient's going to need analgesic plans, is that potentially going to be with something that might make them a little bit more drowsy? Um, all of those little things to make sure that the whole, whole of the patient, if you like, is looked after, um, not just the bit that felt like you were doing something really difficult. Thank you for that summary of R2-D2. One last question while I've got you, Andrew. What are the chances of me getting a pay rise? Well, I think 
At any time like this, it's really worth noting that uh, in any hospital setup, it's absolutely vital for the health of any vibrant department that good, inspired, passionate young people step up to take on leadership roles. Um, and the best thing we can do is support our junior brilliant colleagues to do that sort of stuff. So I consider myself absolutely uh, a seat warmer for the better people that will come after me. So my strong advice is to take up any opportunity to step up and take over my role. It's a surefire way to get a slight boost in pay, right, pay grade. Hmm. I think I'll just stick to my day job then. There's a lovely quote at the start of the paper. Great is the art of beginning, but greater is the art of ending. And thank you so much for explaining your approach to being more considered in how we extubate our patients. This wraps up our featured article of the month podcast for May 2022. This article is available for free on the journal's website. Follow us on Twitter and please join us for next month's featured article of the month podcast. Until then, cheers. Cheers.